Twisted Teddy. I suffer from schizophrenia. Before you jump to any conclusions about me, before that word, schizophrenia, flashes its stigma and makes you think of serial killers, mass shooters, and the like, let me dispel a few things. I am not Norman Bates. I am not Ted Bundy. As a matter of fact, most sufferers of this illness shy away from violence. I do not have multiple personalities. Dissociative identity disorder is a completely different condition than what I have. Most of the time, I'm just like you. I go to work, I watch television, I read books, listen to music, indulge my hobbies, and spend time with the people I love. I just occasionally see and hear things that aren't really there. When this happens, when I hallucinate or hear voices, I refer to these episodes as experiencing interference, because that's how it feels to me. They are interruptions in my everyday life. It's also a good way for me to signal to someone I trust who knows about my condition that I'm in the midst of an episode without having to use that word. I simply tell them, I'm sorry, there's some interference happening, and they understand. Not everyone is understanding. My father was one of those people. I was diagnosed at a very young age. I was only six when a child psychiatrist reluctantly wrote schizophrenia onto my diagnostic chart. It's not a diagnosis assumed lightly, especially to children. Most people with this illness don't begin displaying symptoms until the late teens or early twenties. I was six. However, in a weird way, I consider this a blessing. I never had to experience the, the jarring phenomenon of living a normal life to suddenly having the carpet pulled beneath my feet. Being better to be born blind than lose your sight later in life. I've never known anything else. This has also given me a long time to come to terms with my illness and to learn to live with it. I take medication, and as long as I stay on them, most of my days are just as boring and mundane as everyone else's. Mild episodes will always happen, but the big ones, the ones ranging on the scale 8 or above, are few and far between. The most difficult thing about living with schizophrenia is not always being able to tell what is real from what is not. Sometimes it's very clear. If I see a purple elephant riding a tricycle through my living room, I can pretty much assume that isn't real and not give it much thought. The ones that get to me are the more subtle ones. Answering a phone that wasn't ringing, responding to someone calling my name when there was no one, attempting to sit in a chair that's not really there. This sort of thing can be extremely embarrassing when they happen in public, so I tend to stay away from most people. I know I come across as creepy to some, strange. It's like they know there's something off about me, but just can't pinpoint what it is. Another annoying thing about this illness are the delusions. I've been fortunate, though. I haven't been plagued by delusions the way some schizophrenics are. I don't believe the government has planted a chip in my brain or that I have been abducted by aliens. I don't buy into conspiracy theories or anything like that. However, there is always that danger. I'm always afraid of going off the deep end that way, so I avoid anything that might trigger it. Sometimes all it takes for a simple idea to take root, a word, a phrase, it's not always purple elephants. Oftentimes, it's something much worse. One thing I avoid above all else is religion. I don't mean that to sound disrespectful to anyone who is religious. A common delusion for schizophrenics to fall into is the belief they are hearing the voice of God, or that their hallucinations are actually angels or demons trying to show them visions. I've even had well-meaning people tell me that I'm not mentally ill at all, that I'm gifted. I can see into the spiritual realm whereas others cannot. Of course that's ridiculous. This is not a gift. Yet, 
I do fear someday believing it. Who wouldn't want to believe that they are special that way? I suppose that's why it's such a common thing. Yet, it's very dangerous thinking. As appealing as the notion of being chosen by God is, the reality is that I have an illness. It isn't pretty. It isn't romantic. It just is. Besides that, I don't have such a great track record with religion. My father, I mentioned him earlier, was a Southern Baptist preacher in the backwoods of Louisiana where I grew up. He was a devout Christian and held his family, myself included, to strict standards. We were examples for the community, and he took that position very seriously. In public, anyway. Behind closed doors, things were quite different. My father drank heavily and had a hellfire and brimstone temper. It went even beyond that, however. There was a meanness in him, a side the rest of the congregation never saw. He reveled in his position of power over his followers, and that bled heavily into our home life. We weren't his family. We were his flock. You see this scar across the corner of my mouth? That was delivered with a strip of barbed wire. I could show you my arms and my back as well, but I keep those covered. No matter the weather, I'm always in long sleeves. Having a schizophrenic son was not news my father took well. First, he didn't believe there was such a thing. He was convinced I was behaving this way for attention, claiming to see things that weren't real. Then it got more sinister. My father became seized with the idea that was, in fact, possessed. My hallucinations were satanic visions. I was hearing the voice of the devil. That's when I stopped being human in my father's eyes. I was no longer his son. I was a thing to be tormented whenever he saw fit. He derived a sick pleasure in not just the physical torture, the beatings, the burns, the chokings, the cuts, but the psychological torture as well. He stopped calling me by name and instead used nicknames like Schizo or his personal favorite, Hellspawn. He enjoyed taking advantage of my fragile psychological state. He would say or do things he knew would trigger an episode and then use that as further evidence that I was filled with the devil. One day, when I was about seven, he came home in a drunken stupor as usual, but this time he clutched something in his left hand as he staggered through the front door. At first I thought it was some sort of dead rodent. But when he brought it into the light, it was clear. It was a teddy bear. Torn in places with matted fur and bald spots. In his gravelly, slurred voice, he tossed it at my face and said, Here you go, Hellspawn. Pulled that out of the dumpster for you. Mind you watch out, it's got a mind of its own. With that, he plopped on the sofa and passed out. Mind of its own. That's all it took. That simple phrase. A seed was planted. I regarded the haggard thing my father had thrown at me. It stank. I believed him when he said he pulled it from the garbage. My first inclination was to just throw it away. In a few hours, my father, my father would probably not even remember giving it to me, would never miss it. But what if he did? What if he got angry that I tossed it out? Hanging on to a smelly, rotten, stuffed animal seemed more appealing than whatever punishment my father might inflict on me, so I took it up to my room. This was most likely some sort of mind game. He wanted to see how long he could make me keep this thing, make me sleep with it, make me take it to school, make me eat meals with it. As his petty torments went, this seemed pretty mild, so I figured I could take it. It was just an old bear, after all. But those words kept seeping into my brain, mind of its own. I began to regard the bear with suspicion. When I was seven, I didn't have the discernment skills to be able to tell when a delusion or an episode was about to overtake me. I'm much older now, and I've lived with this for years. 
I now have coping skills and strategies I can use to combat things like this. But back then, I didn't. I stared into the beady, plastic eyes of the bear, and I could feel it staring back at me. It has a mind of its own. I threw the bear across the room. It landed face down on the wooden floor. I decided then that I wasn't going to take it into the bed with me. I would just leave it there on the floor. I went to bed, and after what felt like hours of lying still with one eye fixed on the bear, I managed to fall asleep. I'm not sure how long I slept. It may have been a couple of hours or just a few minutes, but I was awakened by a strange wooden sound. I say wooden because it sounded like snapping twigs and creaking branches. When I opened my eyes, they were already pointed in the direction where the bear laid, still on the floor. But now it was changing. Its furry limbs twisted and lengthened in a jerking, unnatural way. That was the creaking noise I was hearing. Its arms and legs grew and jerked, lengthening and thinning like spider legs. Finally, it lifted its head from the floor. It was swollen to several times its original size and distended across from fluffy ear to fluffy ear was a row of sharp teeth that dripped with drool. It opened its jaw and released a roar that shook the room. I felt its hot breath hit me in the face and I bolted from the bed. I ran into the hall and headed for the stairs. Behind me I could hear the sounds of crackling wood as this thing lifted itself to its feet. I turned to look and it scrambled behind me, walking on spindly legs and using its spider-like arms to dig its claws into the opposite walls of the hallway to propel itself forward. The house rattled with its growls. As I reached the stairs, I slipped on the top step and tumbled to the bottom floor. I twisted my ankle in the process and couldn't get back to my feet. I looked up the stairs and staggering its way down was this monstrosity, no longer a teddy bear, but a scarecrow-like thing with the skin of a teddy bear stretched across its wooden skeleton. It opened its mouth again and spoke, It's lovely out in the woods today, but safer to stay at home. For every bear that ever there was will gather there for certain, because today is the day the teddy bears have their picnic. I screamed and closed my eyes, sliding myself back across the floor like a slug. I began reciting a nursery rhyme that sometimes brought me comfort when I was having an episode. I tried to remind myself that this wasn't real. As I was going up the stairs, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish, I wish he'd go away. As I was going up the stairs, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish, I wish he'd go away. I whispered this to myself over and over. When I opened my eyes, I was in my mother's arms. She was shaking me and calling my name. I looked past her worried face and up toward the stairs. My father stood, the t stood at the top with the bear in his hands. What's wrong with him now, he said. I'm not sure, she said. I think he had another night terror. Figures, my father said in that familiar dismissive tone. Gonna chain you to the bed, boy, if you don't cut this shit out. He threw the bear at me again and disappeared into the hallway. My mother carried me back up to bed. For the next few nights, this happened again and again. The bear would transform into the monster, chasing me, and my mother would find me in various places of the house, hiding in closets or in cabinets, shaking and reciting nursery rhymes. After the sixth night, my mother begged my father to let her get rid of the bear. She offered to burn it, bury it, whatever it took. My father just smugly smiled and said, You'd burn a gift a father gave his son? How ungrateful. Somehow, my father was still more terrifying than anything my broken mind could invent. 
Even so, the constant disturbances during the night were wearing on him, too. So he made good on his promise to restrain me to the bed. Seventh night, he tied me down with ropes and sat the bear square on my chest. Sleep tight, he said as he closed my bedroom door. It wasn't long before I felt vibrations on my chest as a low growl began to rise from the bear. Slowly, its mouth began to stretch across its face in a toothy, distended fashion. Immediately, I closed my eyes and began to recite the rhyme. Over my own voice, though, I could hear that crackling sound. It was growing again, transforming. I abandoned the rhyme and instead began to scream. I called for my mother. I struggled and strained against the ropes until they began to cut into my wrist, and I felt blood trickle down my arm. I could hear voices in the hall. My mother first. Let me go to him, please. He's having a nightmare. Then my father. Stop babying him. He's driving us all as crazy as he is. You want to stop to it? I'll make it stop. What happened next is a blurry mix of hallucination and reality. To this day, I'm not quite sure what actually transpired. I remember my father bursting into my bedroom. I remember the door flinging open and crashing against the wall behind. I remember the crackling noise the bear made as it grew. I remember the bear's voice. Today is the day the teddy bears have their picnic. There was a scream, but not my own this time. My eyes were clenched tightly shut and I just kept repeating as I was going up the stairs. I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish I wish he'd go away. There were growls and roars, crashes, the sound of ripping flesh and screaming, then silence. Finally, my mother came in. She saw me tied to the bed and ran to me, frantically removing the ropes from my bloody wrists. My father was nowhere to be seen. The bear light faced down on the wooden floor, as it had the first night when I had thrown it aside. After attending to my wounds and making sure I was alright, my mother asked me, Where is your father? I looked up at her and simply shook my head. That was nearly 30 years ago. The community assumed that my father must have wandered away in a drunken stupor and had some sort of accident. There was a search in the nearby woods, but nothing was ever found. I still have the teddy bear. Never since that night has it ever transformed again. It's just a bear. Just an old, worn teddy with dead plastic eyes and balding fur. When I first saw it, it frightened me. But I was just a child then, and now I understand that it was all a delusion brought on by my illness. However, for reasons I can't quite describe, I have a certain respect for this old thing. Sometimes the scariest things in this world are just misunderstood. Sort of like me. After all, all of us have a mind of our own. Intuitive ads. You see them everywhere now and don't really give it a second thought. Ads that use tracking cookies to track your browsing history or personal profile and provide suggestions that might appeal to you. You know, the way Amazon suggests new books based on what you just read. Or when you search for something on Google and then start seeing ads for it on other websites. Or when you're a 20-something-year-old girl in a relationship on Facebook, and suddenly all of your ads are for engagement rings and wedding planners. The point is, we're all so used to this that we don't really pay attention to it anymore. But lately, these targeted ads have been unnervingly on point. Buy plastic sheeting in bulk. Electric chainsaws on sale now. Affordable dry lime. Overnight shipping available. I don't know how they're doing it. I don't know what technology is driving these changes, but somehow it's like the internet is reading my mind. 
showing me ads for things that it couldn't possibly know I wanted. I swear to God, I didn't touch a keyboard, I didn't do a search, I was so careful to keep all of my plans and research and ideas offline. How is it doing this? How does it know about the bodies? How to talk to yourself. The first thing you should know about me is that I'm very faint of heart. There's a pamphlet I've been looking for for a while now. I remember coming across it a while ago while I was a child. I was at the doctor's office, the waiting room, getting a physical. The year was 2002. I was born in 1996. That's when I saw it, strewn within the other celebrity or glamour magazines. It peeked out with one single gray corner. It was almost like it was looking at me. I picked it up and read the title. How to Talk to Yourself by a man named Roger Harrison. There was no graphic, just the white background and the aerial font reading the title and the author. To this day, I've never been able to find out who the mysterious Roger Harrison was. I've spent countless hours on the internet browsing for someone, anyone, who remotely matched my query. Last week, I found a tattered piece of paper plastered to a sewer grate, colors running from the recent rain. I picked it up and I read the title. It was the very same pamphlet from my childhood, the one I remember so very clearly on that one day in the waiting room. How to talk to yourself. I quickly stuffed it in my bag. I could feel the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, the feeling you get when you're being watched. I was in a crowded square in the middle of a city. Surely it was a coincidence. I continued home, attempting to forget the pamphlet that was lying in my bag. Perhaps I'd save it as a bit of memorabilia. Perhaps I'd trash it. I walked a little faster now. I was on a sidewalk near the outskirts of the city. I live in a small, yellowing apartment in what you could call the fringes of the city. The building is gray, covered in ivy. I arrived at the building. I slid my key into the lock and opened the door with a creak. I felt the sudden urge to read this pamphlet. I brushed it off. With every step I took up the stairs, I could feel the sensation building more and more and more until I eventually could not take it anymore and broke into a sprint to my apartment. I opened the door, took off my backpack, and grabbed the pamphlet out. The feeling of being watched had subsided now, me being safe in my own home. My neighbors were playing loud music in the room above me. The urge to read the pamphlet remained. My curiosity must have been getting the better of me. I slowly put the pamphlet down, almost reconsidering my decision, but instead decided to, leave, decided to leave it on the kitchen table. I went into my bedroom and slid into my covers. The time was about 10.47 as I drifted off into a deep sleep. That night, I had a strange dream. I was in a large field. The sky was gray and the grass was yellow and tall. I felt cold. The surroundings were desolate and foreboding. As I inspected the surroundings, I realized that this dream was incredibly vivid compared to most other dreams I have. As my eyes scanned the horizon, I spotted something move out of the corner of my eye, almost indistinguishable, but yet I could see every movement from afar. I could see someone. They were entirely draped in a sickly shade of green. Whoever it may have been, they were twitching, almost uncontrollably. I attempted to move towards them, but it felt like my feet were stuck in something, something soft and something warm. Gelatin? Vaseline? I heard a rustling behind me, a twig snapping. I whipped around and the dream went to black. The rest of the night I had no dreams, and I woke up shivering, feeling strange. 
I brushed it off as a side effect of the odd dream. I dressed myself and brushed my teeth. I looked in the mirror. My skin was pale, paler than I've ever seen. It looked as though all my blood had been drained from my body, leaving only the white skin. I walked into the kitchen and I saw it, the gray paper with its running colors. Still looking at me, I was suddenly very cold. The same cold from the dream. I was intimidated. I was intimidated by a piece of paper. I don't know why, it was just so ominous and strange. I never felt this way about a piece of paper. I decided to pick it up. I touched the pamphlet. It was ice cold. I opened it and read, You have a special somebody who lives in your lungs. They like you, but they are shy. They only come out when you are alone. Here is how to talk to them. Step 1. Breathe deeply. Say hi. You are not afraid, are you? They like you. You don't have to be afraid. You won't hurt, I promise. We are smiling at you. I was confused. Say hi to the person in my lungs. Why are they living in my lungs? I won't hurt. Who is smiling at me? It was silent, completely silent. I decided to do as the pamphlet said. I inhaled deeply and said, Hi, softly. Nothing happened. I decided to put the pamphlet away and save the rest of the reading for afterward. I walked to work, but my coworkers were silent, as they usually are. Instead of the typing of computers or movement of machines, there was nothing. Absolute, dead silence. The kind of silence that makes you go mad. It was deafening. I hastily finished my work and left the building to get a cup of coffee. I arrived home about an hour later. It was now 9.24. The pamphlet lay open on the table, tempting me to continue reading it. I gave in to my temptations and picked it up and read, Step 2. Be cold. Don't go to sleep. Not yet. They want to see your eyes. Take one tablespoon of the oil. Eat it. Shut your eyes. Don't yell. Don't scream. Don't. The rest of the section was undecipherable. The ink that was written in was smudged. The second section, as expected, was equally as strange, if not stranger, than the first section. Questions ran through my mind. The oil? What oil was the pamphlet talking about? This was the part that confused me the most, alongside the part that was smudged by the rain. I expected it would be some sort of brood oil with a recipe for it. I had no idea where to start looking for the oil. Perhaps there was explanation in the next step, I pondered. Step 3. Happy, 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 happy! Be happy! Start talking. Say how you are. You want to make them happy. You are happy. We like to happy with you. As I thought, there wasn't any inkling as to what the oil could be. It seemed that the author, whoever he or she was, was almost completely losing his sanity at this point. This obsession with almost chilling happiness was starting to freak me out and I closed the pamphlet and headed upstairs to my bedroom. I got underneath the covers and my head hit the pillow. I had the same dream I had last night. The only difference was that the man in green was closer. He was much, much closer. I woke up promptly in a cold sweat at 3.27 a.m. and couldn't bring myself back to sleep. I had the sudden urge to go downstairs and read the pamphlet. I saw the pamphlet on the table, but something was off. 
Everything on my desk was very organized, and I saw a small envelope on my desk. I rushed towards it and I ripped it open. Inside was a napkin with a crude smiley face scrawled hastily onto it. I remembered specifically at this point the gravity of my situation. I had no recollection of making this note. There were no signs of a break-in as far as I could tell. The beats in my heart began to move faster and faster as I approached the pamphlet. I opened it, and on the first three steps, there was the same crude smiley face scribbled all over. I caught my breath and held it for a moment before breathing out with a wheeze. I was at this point terrified. The questions rushed through my head. Who the fuck was the man in green? And more importantly, how did all these smileys get into my apartment? I began to read the fourth step. Step four. Do you see them? Look. I was beyond scared at this point. Look at what? I was confused and I was terrified of the monstrosity I had brought into my home. Hands shaking, I read the next step. There only had to be a few left, right? Step five. They will say hi. You have made a friend. You are not alone. You are never alone. My main question at this point was who would say hi? Nobody was inside my apartment as far as I knew. My heart was beating at a million miles an hour. Fumbling with the pages, I turned to the next and final step, which was not really a step, but more of a statement. Final step. You're never without your happy friend in your lung. You can sleep now without waking up. The author's obsession with happiness was almost cruel to the reader. It was haunting the way whoever wrote this put it. Somehow, my heart beat faster and faster and I felt woozy. I was confused, terrified, and alone. The last thing I remember for before blacking out was a raspy breathing behind me. I woke up two days later in my bed. Had it been a dream? The paper was nowhere in sight. I walked down to the kitchen and my eyes lit upon the paper. It had been real. My heart sank. The sun was setting. Rubbing my bleary eyes, I picked up the paper and turned to the back. Scrawled on the back of the pamphlet was the following. Never alone. Never alone. Never alone. They're here. Never alone. I don't like this. I'm not alone. I like you. I like you. I can see you, my little friend. I want to touch you now. Let me see you. I like you. I'm going to feel all of your little insides, my very special friend. Underneath the inscription, there was a smiley face. And from behind me, I heard a raspy, shallow voice.